God's word this morning comes from Genesis 37, 1 through 11. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Let's pray. Father, you speak through your word. Uh, you promise that. You promise that your spirit works through it uh, to change our hearts. So we pray that this, this old story that's in the front ends of our Bibles, Lord, uh, would have a tremendous impact even on our lives today, Father. But more than that, help us to see your gospel clear and freshly this morning. Help us to see the great grace that we have in Jesus Christ. And may we meet you as a result in a deeper and more profound way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, One of the really uh, fun and enjoyable things that uh, I feel like I get to do with my job is uh, premarital counseling. Uh, From time to time, I get couples that ask me to marry them, and uh, I get to do premarital counseling with them for the several months as they get ready uh, to be married. But even though it is one of the most fun things I get to do, it doesn't mean that it isn't one of the more challenging things that I get to do. Because what often happens is you get these young couples who are very excited to be married. They're full of love, uh, they're, they're kind of on this euphoric high and so excited, and that's just a wonderful place to be. But sometimes the challenge is helping them to see that maybe some of those euphoric feelings are not going to last forever, and that maybe at some point in their marriage, there are going to be some challenges that they are going to have to face and that they are going to have to work through. So the challenge is not to be a wet blanket. Not to be this killjoy for these young couples, but also help them to get to see that there are challenges that lie on the road. A big challenge is uh, to help them see that they both come from families. They both come from different families and that no family is perfect. In a marriage, you have one person who's coming from one family, and you have another person that's coming from a different family, and those two families operate in very different ways. The couples think that all families act the same, but of course, they don't. 
And they think that their family often is perfect and the way their house ran was perfect. But of course, we all know that's not true either. The challenge is to help them to see that all families, including their own, are dysfunctional. That every family is dysfunctional. The groom comes from a dysfunctional family. The bride comes from a dysfunctional family. And when they get together, they get to create their own unique dysfunctional family on their own. That really becomes the thing to help them see. Well, the second half of the book of Genesis tells us the story of a wildly dysfunctional family that God chose to be in relationship with. The family started with a man uh, named Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and it moves on through the book of Genesis through several generations of this family. Last year, we looked at one slice of those generations. We looked at uh, the story of Jacob, and we saw him to be a profoundly broken and flawed and troubled man who God nonetheless used to do tremendous things and unique things for God's kingdom. What I'd like to do over the next couple weeks is look at that next generation or that next slice of this family and one son in that family in particular, the son of Jacob, whose name was Joseph. And this morning, we're going to start looking at the first chapter of his story. And I think what we'll begin to see is we'll begin to see the dysfunction of this particular generation of God's family. We'll begin to see the, the tragic hero story of Joseph. And, there, and it's a long story. Uh, as was mentioned before, it's the largest single narrative in the book of Genesis, spanning 14 chapters at the end of the book of Genesis. But finally, what I'd like us to look at is the God who stands behind the story. And we'll see that he is a God of providence and that he is a God of grace. But the first thing I want to look at is this dysfunctional family at this particular time in the story of their family. If you grew up in church, you heard stories about wonderful men and women of the Bible. Maybe they were postured as uh, heroes and heroines that, that we are uh, to look up to and to emulate in our lives. But if you look closely, you'll realize that often when we tell these stories to our children, we edit out a lot of information about the lives of these people. This family story starts with Abraham, as we mentioned before, and God enters a unique relationship with him and his family. God promises to grow him into a great nation. And throughout the scriptures, Abraham is celebrated to be a wonderful man of faith. That's what the scriptures celebrate him to be. But despite the fact that he was a wonderful man of faith, he was actually a terrible husband. If you look at Genesis uh, chapter 12, Genesis chapter 20, you see two repeated instances where Abraham pawns his wife off as his sister so that she can be with another man. That's never a good thing, husbands, for you to do. That's kind of a bad thing for you to do. But you see him to be a flawed character. His son, Isaac, who was also a terrible husband, repeated his father's error. He, out of fear, pawned his wife off as his sister, 
to another man as well. Isaac's son, Jacob, as we mentioned before, was no wonderful character to emulate either. He swindled his birthright and blessing away from his older brother Esau. In modern terms, this would be like one son stealing all of his parents' inheritance from the rest of his family, but even more extreme and even more severe in the biblical story. Jacob was then swindled by his uncle and was kind of forced into slave labor for a large period of his life. He had uh, many, many, many children uh, to four different women, and he allowed himself to be drawn into all sorts of bitterness and angry confrontations between all of his wives. He was certainly an imperfect character. And his kids fared no better. They were imperfect characters as well. We're not going to talk a whole lot about it, but go home and read Genesis 28 at some point. And you'll read about one of his particular sons who was given to all sorts of sexual sins involving rape and prostitution and all sorts of really extreme things. The point being is that this family was an absolute mess. Every character in this family was flawed. Every character in this family had major things that tripped them up. They were an absolute mess. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been going to church for pretty much my entire life. I've gone to all sorts of different churches, and I've been going to church for for most of my life. And there's one thing that I've noticed about almost every church, and that is every church at least has one of that family. Here's what I mean by this. Every church seems to have the perfect family. This is the family that shows up at church on time. Their kids are groomed really well and they're dressed really well for church. They sit attentively and listen to the sermon. And, and even sometimes these kids, they, they take notes to the sermon. They are, are so impressive. And everybody else looks upon them and say, wow, that is the perfect family. They seem so perfect. Well, let me tell you a secret. Don't believe the publicity. Because the reality is that is not real. One of the core things that we believe is that each person bears the brokenness and rebellion of sin in their life. And it's manifested differently in different people, but the reality is that it is in every person. It is in everyone. We all are lawbreakers. We all have rebelled against God. We all stand before him as sinners. And because families are made up of individual sinners, Families become little incubators or cultures of sin and dysfunction. It manifests itself differently in different families, but it is in every single family. There is no perfect family out there. Our lives are broken by sin, so our families are broken by sin. We are individuals who were in need of rescue. And because of that, our families are units that are in need of rescue as well. But it bears remembering 
that God entered into a relationship with this broken family that we read about in the book of Genesis, and he remained faithful to this family till the end. He didn't just remain faithful to them, but he brought something incredibly beautiful out of their absolute messiness. And he can do the same for our lives, and he can do the same for our families as well. But our narrative doesn't just deal with the family in general. It focuses on one particular son, and that is Joseph. And in some ways, he's a sort of tragic hero in the story of this family. The story opens right off the bat about telling us about Joseph's flaws. He's one, he's one of the younger children in this really massive family. Uh, he's probably around 17 years old when all these events take, take place. And he has a particular role in this family. We all come from families. We all play particular roles in our families. And our passage tells us right from the beginning what Joseph's role was. We learn about his flaws, we learn about him pretty quickly, and we learn that he is the family tattletale. Every family has one of these. Every family has a tattletale. He's the one that doesn't let anybody else get away with anything that they want to get away with. He also knows that he is the family favorite. That's a rough combination, the family favorite and the family tattletale. And he has the coat given to him by his father to prove to everyone else, to remind them constantly that he is the father's favorite. Favoritism was a a common problem in this particular family. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, favored Jacob over Esau, and everybody else in the family knew about it. Jacob then favored Rachel over all of his other wives, and everybody else understood their second-class status. And now Joseph, because he was Rachel's son, was the favorite son, and everybody else had to get on board and had to deal with it. But because of this, Joseph became arrogant. He became haughty. He became proud. He became full of himself. And this is what so often we end up doing to our kids as parents. Literally, as I was um, writing our sermon, we had a a crisis moment in our own family. I'm, I'm literally typing a sermon about a dysfunctional family. And all of a sudden, I hear a loud uh, crash and a loud bang in my house and glass shattering everywhere. So I walk downstairs, I begin to investigate this motive, and I look at one of my children and say, did you do this? And they said, no, I didn't do it. I look at another one of my children, and I said, did you do this? And they say, no, I didn't do it. So this is what my wife and I learned. We called our daughter in and said, you set the story straight. You tell us what happened. And then, see, we learn interrogation techniques as parents. And we've learned how to manipulate them and our family to sometimes find out what the truth is. We, as parents, learn how to play our kids against one another. Well, everyone in Jacob's family was really clear on what the roles were. Joseph knew that he was the favorite son and he believed his own press. And because of that, it was a constant gaping wound 
that existed in this family. It was that unresolved tension that all families have. It was that unresolved tension that could flare up at any moment. And to make matters worse, Joseph started having dreams. And these dreams were from the Lord. They were messages sent from the Lord to Joseph. But these dreams continued to support Joseph being superior to the rest of his family. But instead of doing the wise thing, Joseph decided to broadcast his dreams to everyone. Instead of being quiet, he chose to rub salt in the wound and tell everyone about it. He goes to his brothers and tells them about how he started having dreams about he's better than everybody else and will rule over everyone else. And then one day, the tension just became too much. One day, the tension boiled over and the rest of Genesis 37 tells us what happened. His brothers see Joseph coming from a distance, so they conspire together to end Joseph's life. They say, we're going to kill him and then tell our father that a wild beast came and killed his son Joseph. So they capture him. They strip him of his cloak. They throw him into a pit, an empty cistern, and they were going to leave him there so that he could die slowly, so that he could suffer through his death by being subject to the elements, by being subject to being killed by wild beasts. They leave him to die on his own. And an incredibly callous move, the passage tells us that at the top of the cistern, they begin to cook a meal and enjoy it with one another. No doubt, hearing the screams of their brother requesting for anyone to help him because he knows he is about to die. In the end, they change their plans. They decide to make some money. So what they do is they pull Joseph out of the pit and they sell him off to traders. Joseph now becomes someone else's property. He becomes a slave who is chained up, carried to Egypt, and sold to Potiphar as a common slave. The prideful and arrogant Joseph has now been brought low. He has become victimized and he has become left for dead by his brothers. And the brothers think they've gotten away with it. They go back to their father. They tell him the story. Their father believes him. And now they believe that that annoying, arrogant little brother of Joseph, of theirs named Joseph, is now gone. But it will not be the last time that they see their brother Joseph. In the end, he will become the hero that ultimately rescues them from their own death. The one who was in need of rescue will eventually become the rescuer. Now, I don't know if you've uh, noticed as we read the passage this morning, or even as you read the whole chapter of Genesis 37, but if you notice, uh, God is not mentioned at all in this passage. He is strangely absent from it. But even though God is not mentioned in this passage, it doesn't mean that it doesn't tell us some really profound things about God in the life of Joseph. Because what we learn in his story is we learn about God's providence and then ultimately we learn about God's grace. 
we see first that he is a God of providence. Now, providence isn't a term that we tend to use a lot in our culture nowadays, but it is an attribute or a characteristic of God. It is part of his being. It's a, it's a theological idea that surrounds the character and personality of God. You see, the scriptures tell us that God is sovereign, which means he is in control of all things that comes to pass. Nothing escapes his watch. Nothing escapes his control. And the idea of providence builds on that idea. It builds on the sovereignty of God. Because it tells us that God is actively involved in all of the little details of life. It tells us that the minutest details of life are all a part of God's divine ordering. All that comes to pass is part of the end that God has in mind. All of it is part of his perfect plan and purposes. You see, you and I are time-bound creatures, right? We have a start. Our lives are somewhere in the middle. And we know at some point, at least our physical bodies will have an end to them. But God is not like us. He has been present from eternity past and will be present in eternity future. Think about that one for a minute. He knows our, our beginning He is present in our today and he is also present in the future and knows our end and is working all things out according to his purposes. And what that means is that everything that is puzzling you about your life at this moment, God is not puzzled by because he knows your end and is working his purposes towards that end. He is working all the little details of your life according to his plan and his purposes. One of the challenges for our family in the fall is that our kids play fall baseball. And what that means is every Sunday at one o'clock, we take our kids over to fall baseball. The thing that makes this challenging is that's the same time that the Ravens play football. And I often get to have to miss the Ravens game because our kids are involved in uh, fall baseball. So this is what I try to do. We have this wonderful invention called a DVR. And what I try to do is I try to record the football games and then Becca, Becca will laugh. I go on radio silence, right? All the other dads are sitting on the sidelines looking at their phones intently like this, pretending to cheer their kids on in baseball, when in reality they're cheering for whatever play just popped up on their phone. And what I try to do is I try to block it all out. I try to close my ears. I try not to pay attention and look at the the reaction of the other dads. But inevitably what happens is inevitably the secret gets out and I find out what happens. Now, that doesn't change the fact that I still go home and watch the game. But often what happens is I watch the game knowing what happens. I watch the game with the end in mind, and it changes ultimately the way that I watch the game. Friends, God doesn't just know the end of the game. He doesn't just know the end purposes of our lives, but he is working through the details to bring about the end that he desires. No minute detail of your life 
whether it is good or whether it is bad, happens by surprise to God. It may be a surprise to you and me. In fact, it often is. But to God, it is no surprise. It's part of a bigger picture that God is painting about your life. You see, no interruption doesn't ultimately come from the hand of God who purposes that thing to happen. Now, I don't know what Joseph was thinking in our story, but he had to wonder where God was in this horrible place that he had found himself in. Because God must have felt in this moment to be very hidden. You and I confront the hiddenness of God all the time. We confront times or or seasons in our life where God seems to be hidden, where maybe he feels aloof or distant or doesn't seem to really care about what's going on in our lives. But if the story of Joseph tells us anything, it tells us that God is in the details, even in the most painful ones that we contend with. Joseph couldn't see it at the moment, but God was working in the details, even in the little things of his life, in order to not just save Joseph's life, but to ultimately save the lives of his brother and his father and the rest of his family. And the same is true of our lives as well. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and and maybe God feels hidden to you. Maybe he feels distant for whatever reason in your life. But know that his providence means that even though it may feel that way, he is still working in the details. He knows the end, doesn't always share it with us, but he knows the end and is working his purposes to bring about that end. He is a God of providence. We see the providence of God in this story. But it's not the only thing we see. Because ultimately we see that he is a God of grace, not just in this story, but in the great story of redemption. He is a God of grace. You see, at the end of the day, the Joseph story is a story of rescue. But it's also part of a greater story of rescue. And in that greater cosmic story of rescue that we read about in the scriptures, we realize that there is another tragic hero. We recognize that Jesus ultimately becomes the one true tragic hero that provides for our rescue. Because just like Joseph, Jesus was rejected by those who were closest to him. At at the end of his life, all of his disciples, his apostles who were most close to him, either scattered or outright betrayed him. We learn at the end of Christ's life that he too was physically stripped. The token of his father's love for him was taken from him. He was victimized and hung on a cross. He was left for dead, just like Joseph was. And ultimately, it tells us that he suffered the greatest moment of God's hiddenness. But what we know is that even through this process, 
He had the end in mind. And the end that was in his mind throughout the end of his life was the rescue of you and I. Because the gospel tells us that though we were sinners, Christ in his grace provided for our rescue. Friends, whatever need or struggle that you are presently wrestling with in your life, know that God is intimately involved with it. And know that he has some end in mind for you, for whatever circumstance you are dealing with at this moment. But also be reminded of the God of grace. Be reminded of the ultimate tragic hero that's mentioned about in Hebrews 12 when it says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Jesus endured so that in the end, in grace, we can rest assured that our end will be an eternity spent forever with him. Let's pray.